Welcome to Summit Crossing Community Church. It's always a great joy for me to be able to fill in for our lead teaching pastor, Jamie Nettles. I'm always thankful to the elders for the opportunity to preach. Uh, Jamie will be back uh, preaching next week. And the words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 1. I encourage you to open up a copy of the scriptures, have that open in front of you this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45. Now, just a few days ago, a Christian told me that they, they really want God to move in their life. They really want their life to look different. That's what we want, right? That's what Christians want. Christians all know that their lives should look different from the world. Christians all know that they should want their life to look different from the world. Well, that's exactly what this passage is about. So before we get into the meat of the text here, we need to set the stage. And so I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, so that we can set the stage here. We looked at this last week. And Jesus said to them, them being Peter and Andrew, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then it says in verses 19 and 20, if we were to go read it, it says that Jesus called James and John, and it says immediately they left and followed him. So, so that means then as we pick up here today in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, here's the scene. You've got Peter, Andrew, James, and John following Jesus around. But you have to realize they're not following Jesus around like a dog follows his owner around on the evening walk. They are learning to become followers of Jesus. They are learning to become disciples of Jesus. And there's a, there's a lot of verses here, verses 21 through 45, that's a lot of verses. There's a lot going on here. But really it all comes together in this one unifying point. And that is that if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. That's what we're going to spend our time thinking about this morning from this text. If we really follow Jesus, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John are, if we really follow Jesus, then our lives will look different. How will our lives look different? Well, what we're going to see in this text is we're going to see seven ways in which our lives will look different. So, way number one. How will our lives look different? We will have a bigger view of salvation. We will have a bigger view of salvation. Bigger than the churchgoer who just wants to avoid hell. Bigger than the average person out on the street who just wants salvation from this week's earthly problem. If we are really follow, following Jesus, our lives will look different and we will have a bigger view of salvation. Now, one of the things I want to show you here is that as you start reading through the first couple of chapters of Mark, there's this repeated emphasis on the fact of Jesus preaching. Let me show you. For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Then, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Then chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Then Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. You see this throughout the first couple of chapters of Mark. There's this repeated emphasis on the fact of Jesus teaching or preaching or proclaiming. Why is there such an emphasis on the fact of Jesus preaching? Why is Mark continuing to show us this? Well, we have a very specific answer to that question in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. Why is there such an emphasis on the preaching of Jesus? If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 38, he gives us a very specific answer. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. So why does Mark in the first couple chapters keep showing us the fact of Jesus preaching? It's because as Jesus is going out from town to town in this region, he is going so that he may preach. He says, that is why I came. Not miracles. He doesn't say, let's go to this town and this town and this town so I can do miracles. No, he says, let's go to these towns so that I can preach, for that is why I came. You see the emphasis? So, Jesus came so that he could preach. And I guess that means then that the content of Jesus' message is pretty important. We're told time and time again Jesus is going from town to town to preach or teach or proclaim. So what was the basic thing Jesus was proclaiming? What was the basic message he was teaching? What was the basic stump speech he gave as he was going out from town to town? Well, go back and look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Because here we find the basic content of the message of Jesus Christ as he goes around preaching. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. So here we learn two things about the content of Jesus' preaching. Verse 14, he is proclaiming the gospel of God. He is proclaiming the good news of God. And second, verse 15, we're told that as Jesus proclaims the gospel of God, he is saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So you see these two things here, verse 14, verse 15. And, and if you look at Luke's gospel, he takes those two things and he brings them together in this nice, neat, concise little phrase. Luke 4.43 says that Jesus preaches the good news of the kingdom of God. And that's in effect what Mark 1, 14 and 15 is saying. Jesus is going around preaching. That is why I came, he says. And what is he preaching? He is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, theologians have spilt a lot of ink arguing about what the kingdom of God means in this context. And most are agreed that the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God 
over his people, or the rule of God over his people. So realize what's happening here. Realize what Mark, the author, is showing us. Jesus came so that he could preach. What did he preach? He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It is the rule and reign of God over his people. So Jesus came so that he could preach this message, the good news of the rule of God over his people. So here's the point. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are going around, and they hear this stump speech time and time and time again. They hear this sermon time and time and time again. The point is, if we really follow Jesus, we will have a bigger view of salvation because salvation includes the rule and reign of God over his people. Think about what that means about salvation. Think about what that means about how we talk about salvation. Salvation means forgiveness. Forgiveness from the wrath of God. Forgiveness from the penalty of sin. Forgiveness because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Our guilt is wiped away. Our shame is wiped away. We are forgiven. Salvation means forgiveness from sins. And it means so much more than that. Salvation means mercy where God withholds the punishment that we have earned. And salvation means so much more than mercy. Salvation means grace, where God gives us undeserved favor that we do not deserve. And salvation means so much more than that. Salvation means forgiveness, and it means mercy, and it means grace, and we should write songs about that, and we should sing about it, and we should pray about it, and we should smile about it, and we should talk to each other about it. But you have to realize that Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the rule and reign of God over his people, which means that total salvation, full, complete salvation, also means being satisfied under the rule of and reign of God. And I'm convinced that our puny view of salvation that ignores this basic gospel message that Jesus was preaching is part of the reason of the basic frustration you and I have as we live our lives in this world because we fail to realize that mercy, forgiveness, and grace leads to us then living under the rule and reign of God, and not just living under it, but having joy and satisfaction as we live under the rule and reign of God. Now, the moment we start listening to what Jesus has to say about that, think about how abhorrent that must sound to the modern world. Think about how repellent that must sound to the modern world. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus is proclaiming the rule of God, the reign of God over his people. In our day, the notion of someone ruling over us or reigning over us, that is, that is loathsome. That is, that is offensive in today's terms. It's unacceptable in today's terms. 
the, the single most repellent thing you could say to someone today is, come to Jesus so that he can rule over you as king. The single most repellent thing you could say to someone in our day and age is, come to Jesus so that he can reign over you and you can live under his rulership and his kingship. That is the single most repellent thing you could say to someone today. And yet, that is the basic proclamation that Jesus is giving as he goes from town to town to preach. You see, in our day, the world is seeking to cast off authority. It's seeking to cast off all external authority, all tradition, and all history, and all notions of God so that I alone can rule, so that I can be God. The world is seeking to cast off all external authority, any authority outside of ourselves. Now all that, of course, goes back to the serpent in the garden with that temptation that we're familiar with. But in our day especially, the world is on a project of self-autonomy, a project of self-rule. I determine my gender. I determine my orientation. I determine my identity. I determine my, put, my personhood. I determine whether or not this unborn baby lives or dies. I determine what is real for me. Flat Earth, 9-11 was a conspiracy. Who cares about all the evidence? I want to believe it, it sounds fun. I determine what is real. I define the world as I see fit. That is the basic trend of the modern person. We are living in the day of self-autonomy, which is to say, to plug it back into what Jesus is saying, which is to say, people don't like being ruled over. People don't like being reigned over. And you have to realize, whether you're a believer here or an unbeliever, you have to realize that is the reason people reject Jesus. The reason people reject King Jesus is because they don't want a king. They want to be king. That is the reason people reject reason. That is the thing that leads to your moments of unbelief. That is the reason that leads people to reject King Jesus. Think about it. The secular world loves it when Jesus heals the poor. That's not why they reject him. The world loves it when Jesus casts out the demon of a marginalized person. That's not why they reject him. Why do they reject him? Because they hate the notion of Jesus ruling over them. They hate the notion of a king with authority reigning, and they therefore having to submit. They hate that. And to be fair, it's not just people in the present day. Go back and look at what's happening here in Mark chapter 1. Notice Mark chapter 1 verse 27. Notice what happens after the people witness Jesus' authority. Notice what the people do after they witness Jesus' authority. Now, this is the end of that text that was read uh, just a moment ago. Jesus comes on the scene, and he casts out a demon. 
Verse 22, it emphasizes his authority. Verses 23 through 26, he casts out a demon. Then verse 27, notice what the people do after they witness Jesus' authority. It says, and they were all amazed. Pause right there. Amazed. Amazed in what sense? Well, it tells us. They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves. They're not happy. <laughs> They're questioning. They're furrowing their brow and looking at this person and saying, mm, I don't know about that. They're questioning. So it says they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves. What did they say? What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So notice what they do after they witness Jesus' authority. It says that they are amazed, but this is not a good type of amazement. They questioned among themselves. The commentators agree this is not some sort of happy surprise that you see from the people here. The people are amazed. They're questioning. They're, they're astonished. They're disturbed. They're disturbed by the authority of Jesus. This is a theme in Mark. You see it described in detail in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. But they are disturbed by Jesus' authority. And so they ask, what is this? And that's been the common reaction to Jesus for the last 2,000 years. People witness his authority through the scriptures. And they say, what is this? Who is this? Who does he think he is? Is his authority from God or from man? And then there are the scribes in this story. Because in this story, this casting out of the demon happens on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, which means the scribes are there. Now that means that the scribes, who are the teachers of the law, the ones who are supposed to be shepherding the people and teaching the people, the ones who are supposed to be preparing the people for the Messiah who is now in their midst, the people who should know better, they're there too. And, and notice what happens. The next time the scribes are mentioned in Mark chapter 2, verse 6, just a few verses later, notice what it says about them in Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Just a few verses later, the scribes, the ones who should know better, they are questioning in their hearts. Think about this scene. The scribes witness with their eyes empirical proof of the supernatural power and miracles of Jesus, and yet they are there questioning in their hearts. What does that teach us about unbelief? What does that teach us about rejection of Jesus? They witnessed the miracle of Jesus with their own eyes. And then we're told immediately thereafter, they questioned in their hearts. We need to understand what rejection of Jesus is about, whether you're a believer here or not. What does that teach us about unbelief? It teaches us this. People do not reject Jesus because of lack of evidence. That is not what unbelief is about. It's never been about that. It's never been about evidence. 
People do not reject Jesus because of lack of evidence. The scribes witnessed a supernatural miracle with their own eyes, and then immediately they're questioning. We do not reject Jesus because of lack of evidence. We might have all sorts of complicated arguments about why we think God doesn't exist or why we're going to reject Jesus, and those arguments might be well thought out. But people do not reject Jesus because of those arguments. People do not reject Jesus because of a lack of evidence. People reject Jesus because they don't want to bend the knee. People reject Jesus because they don't want an authority. They don't want a king. They want to be king. They don't want to bow the knee to another. That is the primary reason for all unbelief. We don't want to, re- we don't want to bow the knee. And we need to understand unbelief. So there's, there's people here today, there's Christians here today who have a son or a daughter or a friend or a coworker that they care about deeply and you pray for their salvation and you try to talk to them. And we should remember, salvation is a work of God. We should continue to pray to God for their salvation. But at the very least, as we minister to them, as we try to understand their unbelief, as we plead with the Lord on their behalf, we have to understand the thing that is motivating their unbelief. People reject Jesus because they don't want to bend the knee. You see, the chief priests and the elders, they had plenty of evidence. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had... John the Baptist, they had the miracles of Jesus, that they witnessed with their own eyes, empirical proof. They had an empty tomb, yet they still reject him. You see, rejecting Jesus is not about evidence. It's about rebellion. All sin is about rebellion against the king. You see, today, people reject Christ for the same reason the chief priests and elders rejected him. They don't want to bow to him. They don't want to obey him. They don't want to worship him. They want self-rule. They want to define what is true. William Ernest Henley's famous poem, Invictus. Many of you have heard it. Many of you are familiar with it. The poem Invictus is the anthem of our modern culture that is in rebellion against its creator. The last two lines, many of you are familiar with, the last two lines of the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In contrast to that, Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the rule and reign of God. And here's what I want you to understand. If you are an unbeliever here today, I would love to talk with you after the service about this. Please come find me. True joy is not found through being the master of your own fate. That is a lie. That is a bill of goods that you're being sold. True joy is not found through being the captain of your own soul. True joy is not found when you get to define the world as you see fit. True joy is not found when you get to be God, when you get to to determine right and wrong. True joy is not found when you get to determine what is true or not true. That is a lie. That will not lead you to happiness. 
I would love to talk with you about that. Please come find me after the service. I want you to know, if you are now rejecting our Lord, rejecting your King, your Creator, Jesus Christ, that true joy, true, lasting, meaningful, deep-seated joy is found only when we live under the authority of the true King, the authority of Jesus Christ. So what we're seeing in this passage is that if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Number one, we will have a bigger view of salvation, a view of salvation that also includes living with joy under the authority of Jesus. Now, two through seven are going to go very, very quickly, I promise you. So, so, what we're seeing in this text is that if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Number two, we will take things immediately to Jesus. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 30. We will take things immediately to Jesus, just like that last song we sang. Mark chapter 1, verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Simon's mother-in-law, sick with fever, so they told Jesus about her. Notice their first instinct, their first instinct to tell Jesus and how right they were. Now the point is not that if you send for a doctor, that means you don't trust God. That is not the point. The point is that a Christian's first instinct should always be Jesus. Now this requires training. This requires training. It's called discipleship. And so I call on all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, all who want to follow Jesus, as Peter, Andrew, James, and John are, I urge all of you to purpose in your heart with the power of the Holy Spirit to train your heart to immediately tell Jesus. Train your heart to immediately take it to Jesus. Our habits should be trained to at once take it to Jesus. And Christians know that if Jesus can heal the fever of the body, then Jesus can heal the most sin-sick soul. So, if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Way number three. We will serve others. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 31. We will serve others. Now, we're still here in the story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Mark chapter 1, verse 31 says, And he came and took her by the hand. Notice the compassion of our Lord. And he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. How will our lives look different? We will serve others Look at this verse and you tell me, Mark chapter 1, verse 31. You tell me, what is the response of someone who has experienced the healing power of Jesus? It says right there, and she began to serve them. You see, people who have experienced the full authority of Jesus that can cast out demons, that can heal a fever, they are busy serving others. That's what the text says. They are serving others. Notice they're not just busy 
They are busy serving others. And that, by the way, is the main distinction between a busy body and God-approved busyness. There's all this talk today about busyness and all these books being written about busyness. And you just have to see it's very simple. We're all going to be busy, okay? We should be busy. The pattern of the scriptures is work six, rest one. That leads to a busy life. God-approved busyness, the distinction between being a busybody and God-approved busyness is that God-approved busyness involves serving others. You see, the problem with busyness is not busyness. It's that too often we're busy doing the wrong thing. Notice what's happening here in the text. One minute she is down, down, ill with fever. But once she is healed, it says, she began to serve them. This is this Christian concept that Paul talks about over and over again. It's called transformation. Wow, the church needs to see Mark chapter 1, verse 31. If I had all of the Christians in one room, I would read Mark chapter 1, verse 31 to them. We need to understand transformation. The power of the gospel transforms us. We need to take note of this. He transforms us. The healing power of Jesus transforms us from people who say, Wow, no one calls me when I'm not there. To people who say, wow, I need to check on so-and-so because they're not there. Jesus transforms people from saying, wow, I wish somebody would care enough to serve me. To being people who say, who can I serve today for the kingdom? It transforms us. Once you are healed, look what happens. Mark 1.31, she gets out of the sin-sick bed. She does not stay in the sin-sick bed. She gets out of the bed, and she begins to serve others. It's the concept of transformation. It's massive in the Christian life. Let me give you an analogy of transformation. Christian transformation is this. Christian transformation is when God takes a weed patch and turns it into a garden. I've, some, I've got some gardeners here in the room. Does your garden have weeds in it? Yes. But it's a garden. It's not a weed patch anymore. That is Christian transformation. So if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Number four. We will bring others to Jesus. We will bring others to Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. This is a new story now. We will bring others to Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 32. It says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him. You see that? They brought to him. All who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. We will bring others to Jesus. Our lives will look different because we will bring others to Jesus. When the healing power of Jesus is experienced, you bring others to his feet. That's what we're being told here in verses 32 and 33. When the healing power of Jesus is questioned, like the scribes, you murmur, you resist. But when you are satisfied under the authority of God, you bring others to him. Think of it like this. If you have out-of-town friends coming in for a visit, are you going to bring them to the restaurant where the food is 
eh, where the atmosphere is a little too loud, and overall the, the, the experience is just rather unsatisfying? No! When your out-of-town friends come, you're going to take them to that restaurant, you're going to bring them to that restaurant where the food is fantastic, where the atmosphere reflects the best parts of our local culture, where the experience is totally satisfying. You see, it's real simple. If you find Jesus satisfying, you will bring others to him. If you don't find Jesus satisfying, you won't bring others to him. So, if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Number five, we will pray. This is verse 35. We will pray. And we have to look no further than the Lord Jesus himself for the example. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. God the Son praying to God the Father. Jesus was sinless, and he still prayed. Jesus was God the Son, and he still prayed to God the Father. Jesus created the world, and he still prayed. Are you sinless? then how much more do you need to pray? Are you God? Then how much more do you need to pray? Did you create the world? Then how much more do you need to pray? If the one who has full authority prayed to God the Father, how much more ought we who are sin-sick pray? The first sign that someone is rejecting the authority of God the first sign that someone is rejecting God is they stop praying. Because if you trust in the full authority of Jesus, then why would you not take everything to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us? So if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different how will it look different? Number six, we will overhaul our thinking about rights. We will overhaul our thinking about rights. The, the big thing in this passage, it's all about Jesus' authority. Into chapter two, it's all about Jesus' authority. He has the authority to cast out demons, the authority to heal people, the authority to forgive sins in chapter two, and on and on. That's the big point here about who Jesus is. All right, so it's talking about Jesus' authority. What is Jesus' authority? Let's define our terms. And, and the word here, the Greek word is excusia. And it means to have the right to control or govern. Jesus has full authority, which is to say he has the full right to govern. Now, we should be very interested in this, right? Because there's a lot of talk these days about rights. That's all we hear about is rights. Whether or not we have a right to health care, a right to a certain standard of living, a right to an abortion, a right to a free college education, and on and on and on and on. 
you have to realize that this is the wrong starting place for such a conversation. That is an anti-Christian starting place for any conversation. Well, do we have a right to this? Do we have a right to that? That is not the Christian starting point to such a conversation. When Christians talk about rights, they must never start with human beings, whether or not we have a right to this or that. Christians think Godwardly, not manwardly, which means we start with God. In the beginning, God created. So when talking about rights, Christians must start with the authority of Jesus. We must start with his right, his right to rule. And you must make it personal, because this is really about his right to rule over each of us. Do you find it interesting that nobody's talking about the rights of God? God, who has absolute authority, has the right to rule and govern all things. You see, God's sovereignty is about his might. God's authority is about his right. His right to rule over his world and his creation and his people. And also, this God, through his son Jesus, who has the right to rule, he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came as the Messiah, the one who saves, and Jesus saves mankind by taking upon himself the guilt of their sin, paying the penalty of that sin unto the point of death, and then he rises victorious over that death. And that is what leads to our last difference. If we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. How will it look different? Number seven, we will see Jesus as death defeater. We will see Jesus as death defeater. Now this point is veiled, so you don't all have to come, but I do invite those who are willing to come with me behind the veil to see this point, because this point is veiled, but it is clear in this passage, even though it's veiled. So, if you're willing to come behind the veil, I'm going to show you three verses where this point is being made in chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, in the midst of that story of Jesus casting out the demon. It says, this is the demons now talking to our Lord, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. So notice what's happening. These demons there in the midst of this, you know, being cast out of this man, they rightly identify Jesus, and Jesus in response says, be silent. Go down to verse 34 now. You see the same thing happening. Mark chapter 1, verse 34. And Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because... They knew him. Why didn't he let them speak? Because they knew him. Obviously, that is peculiar, right? He says, do not speak because you know me. Then, third example, Mark chapter 1, verses 42 through 45. Now we have a human being in the mix where the same thing happens. 
Jesus is healing a leper here. So Mark chapter 1, verse 42. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus, verse 43, sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, verse 44, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. So he, he heals a leper, and he sternly charges him to not tell anyone. So you see this three times, three times, twice to a demon, now one to a human being. In chapter one, people there are about to rightly identify Jesus, and he tells them, no, be silent. And you see this a few more times throughout the, the gospel of Mark, but since we see it three times in, in chapter one, we have to draw attention to it. What is going on here? Why is he telling them to stop rightly identifying him? Well, some refer to this as the messianic secret, but the better description is to call it the veiled disclosure, which isn't complicated. Jesus is disclosing, that is revealing, who he is, but in a slow, gradual, veiled fashion. He's slowly, gradually revealing who he is. Throughout all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but especially in Mark, you see this veiled disclosure presented where Jesus orders demons and healed people to not reveal who he is. And it's very peculiar, and we all raise eyebrows at this when we're reading. Why is Jesus doing this? Why doesn't Jesus just fully disclose who he is in that moment to whoever's there? Why does he tell them to be quiet? Why, is, why do these gospels present to us the veiled, gradual revelation of who Jesus really is? The reason is this. The reason is because Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost through his death and resurrection. It all is building up to and is therefore accomplished by his death and resurrection, which means it is impossible, no exceptions, it is impossible to fully and rightly understand Jesus Christ apart from his death and resurrection. Let me put it like this. If you see Jesus as leprosy healer, but not death defeater, then you haven't rightly seen Jesus. If you see Jesus as demon remover, but not death defeater, then you haven't rightly seen Jesus. If you see Jesus as witty teacher, but not death de defeater, then you haven't rightly seen Jesus. If you see Jesus as the one you pray to so you can get a nicer car, and you don't understand that he is death defeater, you have not seen Jesus. And that is why Jesus, in his three-year ministry, as depicted in the Gospels, that's why Jesus is slowly revealing who he is to the people. Because Jesus knows that until his death and resurrection, the people, even the disciples, don't you get frustrated with how they don't understand Jesus for three years? He knows that all people, even his disciples, are going to misunderstand who he is until his death and resurrection. He knows that all people are going to misunderstand and distort who he is until his death and resurrection because that is why he came, and that is the means through which he is accomplishing all that he came to accomplish. And so he tells the demons to be quiet because the death and resurrection has not come yet, and no one's going to get it until that moment anyway. It's a veiled disclosure, it's slow, it's gradual, it's deliberate. Let me just show you a quick example of this. We're about done. 
fast forward to the crucifixion story. It's Mark chapter 15. It's the climax of the entire gospel. It's very, very long. Mark chapter 15. And at the foot of the cross, in chapter 15, verse 39, we have the centurion, the man who is probably overseeing the entire crucifixion. And this is what we read. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, why am I showing you that verse? I'm showing you that verse because until the centurion makes this confession in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, no human in the book of Mark explicitly identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Why? Because, back to chapter 1, it's impossible to understand the full identity of Jesus Christ without understanding his death and then his resurrection. So our lives will look different because we will see Jesus as death defeater. So if we really follow Jesus, our lives will look different. So as we close, how will our lives look different? Well, we're going to have a bigger view of salvation a bigger view of salvation that includes forgiveness, that includes grace, that includes mercy, and that motivates our praise and our obedience, but it also includes living under, living under with joy and satisfaction the rule of God. We will take things immediately to Jesus. We will serve others. We will bring others to him. We will pray. We will think differently about rights and what we are owed and we will trust in Jesus as the death defeater. You see, Christians all know that their lives should look different from the world. We all know that should be the case. We all want it to be the case for our own lives. And so I encourage you to take these seven things that Peter, Andrew, James, and John learned as they followed Jesus around. I encourage you to take these seven things. I encourage you this week, even now, to start praying through them. I encourage you in your missional community group this week to press these seven things into each other. How will our lives look different? Let's start here. Let's close by praying together. Father, we, we live in a world that is in all-out rebellion against your authority, rebellion against who you are. And Father, as Christians, we live with a set of expectations that often produce lives that look exactly like the world. Paul says in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, that is my prayer for us all. Whether we are identifying as followers of Christ here today or whether or not we are rejecting Christ, I pray that you would shine the light on us, awaken us from our sleep. I pray that we would be made to see through the light of Christ the beauty of the sacrificial authority of Jesus Christ who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we pray all this for the sake of your name. Amen.